and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined by Sarah Jane Bentley and Matt Bianco. Sarah Jane, Matt, welcome back to the show. Thanks, David. Good to be here. Glad as always. <laughs> so we are here to answer listener questions about the Rector of Justice. We have talked our way through the novel, and here we are one final time to discuss Louis Alconcos's. Should we call him Louis? I feel like we should call him Louis for this episode. Lou. What's big the, Lou? Yeah, big Lou. <laughs> big Lou. <laughs> yeah. What's the most disrespectful thing we can call him? Um, before we get into our conversation uh, surrounding your questions, I want to remind everybody that you can get in touch and send questions for. Well, this book, if you'd like, although we want to answer them on the air, or future future books by joining the conversation on the Close Reads podcast discussion group on Facebook, following us on Instagram at Close Reads Pods, or emailing us at CloseReadsPodcasts at gmail.com. Most of the questions for this book actually came in through the Facebook thread. I don't think I got any of my email this time for the, for the first time in a long time. Uh, so I've pulled up the Facebook group here, and I'm going to... Uh, just kind of scroll down. Some of these we will do as is customary, um, a little bit sort of um, rapid fire style, and some we'll we'll dig into uh, pretty deeply. What this, is the purpose of these? Is it to like is it stump the hosts? Are they trying to stump us? Is that why we weren't <laughs> supposed to see the questions? Well, in they <laughs> they do do that sometimes. You know, pe- people out there like to get clever and cute and trying to stump us. But as it turns out, history suggests that we are, generally speaking, an unstumpable group of people. So, Dang. But the great thing about it is that I'm the moderator who takes the questions and asks them of the two of you. And so I can say that with very little little risk. (laughs) But you Um, have to answer them too, surely, David. uh, Surely? Mm. Come on. That's what what (laughs) listeners want, really, is the David Kern take. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, we're going to test that theory in this episode. <laughs> uh, this first question comes from Sarah. Wait, not Sarah. Not Jane. Sarah Jane. Oh, no, so Sarah. That's tricky. Although I didn't I, know we could do that. Although I can't <laughs> prove that her middle name is not Jane. It's her name is Sarah Montgomery. Longtime listener. She's got that little uh, coffee shop, coffee mug icon next to her name. So she's a what do they call that? A um, conversation. Starter. She's a conversation starter on the Facebook group. And uh, although she didn't start this thread, she did ask a question. She asks, we know that Jules Grimes committed suicide, but does anyone else feel that Jules' story is incomplete? That I miss clues about the period between his visit with Prescott in jail and his death. Nicole, uh, also Jules. also a conversation Griscom? starter. Yes. Uh, Griscom, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I, there was a typo there and my brain didn't correct it as, uh, as I was reading the question. Matt, what do you think about this? I, I got caught up on the the last name. So oh. what's the actual <laughs> question? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Right. Right. Jules Griscom. Yeah. Um, I just kind of blindly kept reading. <laughs> um, we know that Jules Griscom committed suicide, but does anyone else feel that Jules's story is incomplete? That I miss clues about the period between his visit with Prescott in jail and his death. And Nicole also said, I wondered if I missed something too. I didn't go back to check. What do you guys think about this? Matt, I'll let you answer this one first. I don't think they missed anything. If they did, then I missed it too. <laughs> um, okay, so we're, so that part of the question, you have not been stumped. <laughs> yes. Um, score one for me. So I don't, <laughs> I've got a little tally here. I'm, we're going to see. Excellent. What is it? Stump the chomp? What's the NPR thing? <laughs> why, why did it get so competitive all of a sudden? I don't know. America, I don't know. <laughs> American thing. Are English people competitive? No, I'm. I'm terrible. I'm really competitive. <laughs> All right. Per- perfect. This is going to be the best show. <laughs> don't encourage me. <laughs> I don't, I think that, 
I mean, my guess is that is that Jules has has chosen to define himself as anti Prescott, and so there's not really much to tell us about Jules except for when he's being anti Prescott, hmm. and, and it's almost like everything that gets skipped or left out of the story it would have would be just more anti Prescott stuff because that just seems who he is. But maybe that's just because that's all we've gotten and that there was another side and we just never got to see it. Hmm. But then again, um, what's his face? Brian is telling the Prescott story. So the only parts of Jewel's story that would be appro- appropriate would be the Prescott stories, which of course are all anti Prescott, right? Hmm. I mean, they, I mean, they're all, they're all Prescott stories that define Jules as being the anti Prescott. Sarah Jane, do you want to add to this? Yeah. So is Sarah, our listener, concerned that there's something happening after the end of Jules Griscom's memoir that that she's missed as a reader. Is that kind of have I got the right sense of the question uh, there? I I think probably I think that she I think there's this sort of a sense of um she she says that the stool, the story feels incomplete. So maybe that maybe that maybe she feels like there is supposed to be something that explains why he ultimately does commit suicide. Yeah. More than just that visit. Like no one comes, you know, we don't get anything from David Criscom. We don't get anything from his father. We don't get anything from um our narrator. We don't get anything mm-hmm. from uh Prescott himself commenting on or very little anyway, right, commenting right. on that ultimate sort of um his ultimate, you know, Jules's demise. And so I, mm. and so I wonder if perhaps it, it leaves it feeling like there's a suggestion that Prescott, because of Prescott, Jules, you know, drives off the cliff or whatever. Um, well, I think one thing we're dealing with in the novel is that we're given a sort of finite account from Jules Griscom, which is handed to Brian by, by Dave. So in that sense, that's all that Brian has to work with in his, mm. in his memoir. Mm. So that is, it is complete in that sense, in, insofar as that's what Jules had written. And we get to the end of that, at the end of chapter 19. And then I think the only thing we hear about Jules after that are sort of Prescott's reflections on Jules and how Jules is his greatest failure. So there is an ellipsis there, but is, isn't it similar to what... Um, Matt was saying is that that part of Jules's life is not significant in shedding light on Prescott in any way. Is he in, is he in America when he dies, Jules, or have I, I've got this sense that he was in France. Maybe I just imagined that. Mm. I can't remember, but there's a kind of I have to go back and check shadiness on surrounding his suicide as well, because he's drink driving, isn't he? With a girl in the passenger seat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I suppose that is suicidal behavior, but there's a little bit of ambiguity about that in itself, isn't there? And that it could, there's a kind of an accidental nature to a car crash. That was going to be my follow-up question. Oh, because right, I, okay. Yeah, I'm not sure that there's, I, I didn't read, I mean, I don't recall them saying it was specifically was suicide, suicide right? so much as, as you say, suicidal behavior. Although he see, it seemed like there was an implication that he had a sort of, um, you know, death wish like a character from Hemingway. <laughs> yes, like or that. even from The Great Gatsby, you know, mm. where it's something yeah. like wealthy people, they s- smash up against other people. And uh, I mm. can't remember the quotation from Gatsby, but it's something like that. 
about mm. them being careless drivers. <laughs> so English people do read American novels with, when they're not forced to. Um, I've read I've read The Great Gatsby several times. Yeah. Jane's not English. Well, true, she's Welsh. Yeah, yeah true. The Wel- I love American novels. <laughs> I read loads of them. <laughs> um, okay, this next question comes from Holly. And she asks... Sir, this is, Sarah Jane does get a point for that, by the way. Just to, Oh, true, true. I'll just, I tell it for each... Only one point. <laughs> I answered both parts of the question. Okay, so I do have... Yeah, so we got to decide this. Am I giving a tally for just not being stumped? Or if there's a multi-part question, is, is it like one of those shows where just the host just gets to give tallies? Like one of those ESPN yeah. sports shows where they get to debate each other and just whatever, however he's feeling in the moment. He just gives a bunch of... He presses a button and it goes ding, ding, ding. We need some of those button sound effects, I feel. We do. Maybe Logan can drop something in after the fact for us to make it sound like we know what we're doing ahead of time. <laughs> this next that was question. Your, that was your cue, Logan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it's just he's going to be dropping in like, you know, like nonsense sound effects now. Um, Cartoon boings. Yeah, exactly. All right. This next question, as I said, is from Holly. And she says, throughout the reading of how the school functioned, I kept thinking of Charlotte Mason and the principal that all children are born persons. It felt like the school was a bit utilitarian in that everyone was expected to become a certain way, social, athletic, etc. If the principle of children being born persons had been applied, would Prescott have failed Jules? Am I wrong in reading this school as trying to produce a similar person, many miniature Prescotts, she held in parentheses, of each of its students instead of trying to cultivate each with his, with his unique gifts? And then she says, she adds, oh, and I agree that none of the women ring true to me, especially Cordelia. If Harriet was a true uh, Parisian and lover of the arts, wouldn't she also have the elegant simplicity the French women are known for instead of being plain? So I guess Holly is giving you a, di- a little yes. thing there, uh, Sarah Jane. <laughs> I'll so take we, that. Thank you, Holly. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and uh, Mark against me. Yeah. <laughs> we can, we can um, touch on that again if we need to. Um, so Charlotte Mason and the principle of that all children are born persons is this school... Um, sort of trying to produce similar people, similar persons, those being many miniature Prescotts. So Jane, I'll let you take this one first. I think Holly is onto something there. And I recall we discussed it a little bit, maybe it was last week when Matt said that there were some similarities between Dave Griscom and Prescott because Prescott accuses Griscom of wanting that for the school, that if Dave Grescombe was in control, he would create a load of Dave Grescombe models. So, yeah, I do think there's a sort of archetypal Justin, Justinian, that's the right word, isn't it? <laughs> Which uh, conforms to some of the principles and, and perhaps even the role model of, of Prescott himself. Whereas Charlotte Mason I suppose is more into the idea of education as a leading out of the soul of discovering what seed is already planted there and, and nurturing that individuality. So I think there is a conflict there. Um, I suppose the difficulty with a character like Jules is that there, there are a lot of weeds growing uh, in that particular bed, aren't there? So hmm. I, I don't know what Charlotte Mason would say about that, but if... <laughs> Presumably you have to encourage the, the virtuous aspects of a character and weed out the bad ones. And I, I think that is what Prescott tries to do. But with any of these big institutions, there is a kind of institutional stereotype or archetype um, that results. And I often get asked that actually about the school I work in, you know, 
what so what kind of boy does it produce what's the typical Etonian what are the traits and the typical yeah yeah so I I think I agree with Holly that that maybe there are problems with this kind of schooling but when you're schooling on mass like this rather than homeschooling as a mother then um certain compromises have to be made and there's kind of a structure that gets imposed in a way Mm. Matt um she mentioning this the sort of concept of sort of archetypal standards or we the word typical came up but I, I'm going to focus on her comment there about Sarah Jane's comment about archetypal um, standards <clears throat> is that do you think counter to the concept of people being born persons and cultivating virtues in individual people because on the one hand when you talk about an archetypal standard you're sort of talking about something to work towards. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that you can do that. You can have that as a sort of guiding light or something to, to, uh, you know, both appeal to and work towards and still recognize the individuality of, of individual people, so to speak. So do you think that in this school that it's leaning too heavily on those archetypal standards uh, as models and, and thus it, and that's one of the reasons why those failures of, Prescott has failures with people like Jules. Yeah, I, th- I, I think. Well, I, I agree with that with your premise there that there's an archetype or archetypal standards that are necessary for education. Do, do I get a or you get a tally, point? I get a point. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that that's what we're driving towards, right? Like hum- to be human, to be a man, to be an adult, to be whatever. Um, and I think what. Charlotte Mason does that's really helpful for us is help us to remember that there's a personality, a personhood to it that remain that's not swallowed up by the archetype that remains as you're pursuing the archetype. And I, you know, I, I maybe just as a, as an example, right? Like there are all kinds of dogs, German shepherds and Australian shepherds and chihuahuas. And if, if chihuahuas are in fact dogs, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> Um, and Bichons and whatever. There's all these different kinds of dogs and all of them participate, all of them have the archetype of dogness, but then they all have their kind of individual. um, Well, I mean, in this case, there's, what do you call those? Breeds. Breeds, um, the individual breeds, but then like even within a breed, right? An individual dog has a personality that's different from the other dogs and yet they're all still dogs, right? But then we can see what a dog looks like when it's not being properly dog and that's you know the, the the one living in the alley of a city eating trash and and you know attacking passersby um it's not appropriately a dog anyways <laughs> so i think i think the problem here with uh with uh frank's school is that he has confused individual characteristics and traits with the archetype of what a man is. Uh, he's trying, he's got a boys school and he wants those boys to grow up to be men, but he, he's not, he's not moving them toward an archetypal man or the archetypal man. He's, he's moving them towards this idea of a man that he has, which assumes too much with respect to particular characteristics and qualities and personality traits, his own. I think. Um, and so then it doesn't allow room for a different kind of personality like that, that in his mind, I think, and the Justinian 
situation, that person isn't truly a man. The, the one that doesn't like playing football, um, the one that doesn't, you know, whatever. And, and so yeah, yeah, those people get lost because they can't be themselves and still be men or in this case, Prescott's right. Um, hmm. But, but in Frank's defense, I think he does outgrow that tendency. Yeah. I was going to say, right. Like what happens in his relationship with Brian, I think is him seeing that, that Brian can or is indeed a man, even though, I mean, he has to grow, he has some growing himself that he has to do, but, um, but it doesn't undercut Brian's personality the way maybe he tried to do with Jules or in the other, in some of the other boys. Does that make sense? What about the idea that he, that Brian essentially does follow a similar route to Prescott in that he goes to theological college and then goes and teaches at Dustin Martyr. That's sort of what Prescott hopes for him, isn't it? And that's what he guides him towards. So there is a sense in which Brian becomes a bit of a Prescott in some ways. Yeah, and go well, go ahead, Matt. You gonna say something? You look like you're on the verge of Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if what I was gonna say because I mean I agree like there's the similarities between the path that he takes and where he ends up, mm. but his personality is not that's abolished. True. I I was thinking about that one. Uh, towards the end of the book, because I was thinking about in some ways, it seems like Prescott sees Brian as, you know, another chance to mentor somebody, but also somebody who is similar to him, who he can, you know, he can kind of say, follow in my footsteps to some degree, but who also is different enough that he might not be as hard and harsh in the ways that he was almost like it's like a second chance for him. Um, to, to sort of correct some things that some mistakes that he made to help somebody not make the same mistakes as he did. Um, and he, that's, it seems like that's part of the reasons why he treats him almost like a son or like another student. You, he, he, mm. he really invests in him. He put, he gives, he gives him the kind of time that you might give a mentee, you know, just mm-hmm. seems like they have that sort of relationship and he's very, you know, in a way that he's not sort of one person with him all the time. He's sometimes he's blustery and frustrating. And sometimes he's very gentle and kind and speaks, you know, very... Um, Frank, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Frank, towards Brian, yeah. And then sometimes he's, you know, sometimes he's very... Uh, he, he's sort of like a sage. And sometimes he's like a, a blustery old man, you know? Right. Mm. Um, and, and at the end, he's even a bit vulnerable, isn't he? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, do you think that... You know, you know, Frank makes that distinction between the students where there were some that he was kind to because it was easy to be kind to them or I don't, maybe not kind is the word, but I think there's somebody he liked because it was mm-hmm. easy to like them. And then the one, the, the one boy that dies, right. He laments the fact that he wasn't good to that boy because, because that boy wasn't charismatic enough to be, to, to make him have to be treat him a certain way. Right. Do you, do you know, you know what I'm referring to? Yes. The, um, it's one of the boys who isn't as charming or as um, as charismatic as Charlie, but is also one of his prefects. Yeah, yes, uh, yeah, was, yeah, yeah. That's the distinction, right? There was he, yeah. he was he behaved one way toward Charlie because Charlie was charismatic, and another way toward this boy that died in the war because he wasn't charismatic. Hmm. So, why does he treat Brian the way he does? Is it because Brian? deserves it like does brian have a a a charism to himself that makes frank like him or is 
Frank overcoming that. Do you remember that? One of the things that Prescott seems to admire in his students is the degree of their admiration of him. (laughs) So (laughs) Brian's very keen to earn the respect of Prescott in the same way that Charlie was his hound. Whereas this other boy was somewhat indifferent. He wasn't willing to earn Prescott's Mm. respect at all. So there are various times in the novel where Prescott says things like, um, you know, they didn't fear me or he likes to know that he's had an, he's made an impression on somebody, I think. So this is more of Frank being Frank. I, I would suggest that I think. Yeah. Cause Brian's (laughs) desperate for Frank's approval all the time. True. Right. Mm. And Frank has confessed to liking that. Yeah. I was, I was hoping it was a place where Frank had grown, but I, I'm convinced. I think you're right. Okay. Well, time for the next question. <laughs> Sometimes these conversations can feel a little bit abrupt, but this one's from Krista. She says, in reading Jules' memoir, it was obvious that he hated Dr. Prescott. However, Jules' account didn't make me hate Prescott. Is this a flaw in Auchincloss writing, or does it just prove that Jules' hate wasn't actually against Dr. Prescott? It really makes me think that his frustration isn't against Prescott, but against not truly knowing God, similar to Jack and Gilead. So I don't know if you've read Gilead, either of you, uh, the Marilyn Robinson novel. So you can read American novels. I need to read that. Everyone's telling me how brilliant it is. I've only read Housekeeping, so I need to read the rest. Right, you might as well, might as well, you know, catch up to the, you know, the rest, the last 40 years of her life. Um, okay, so what do you think about this, though? We'll, we'll disregard the Marilyn Robinson reference there. Um, does, so is it a flaw in Auchincloss writing, or does it prove something about Jules that Jules' memoir doesn't make at least Krista and I'll throw my hat in the ring on this one, hate Dr. Prescott? Or is it just a flaw in jewels? Matt, I'll let you go first on this one. Or is there another path? Um, so it would be a flaw if he intended to make us hate Frank by t- sharing this memoir with us, right? And then mm-hmm. because we don't hate Frank, we he failed, I guess. Is that the, the question? Or, or is... Is she saying, or did he not intend that? And then he's showing us something else about Jules and yeah, Alcalas didn't intend for us to hate Frank. He actually is trying to show us something about Jules' hate um, and Jules' hatred for God or whatever. Right? I think this is where the multi-layered narrative structure can. You have to say what we're talking about, because on the one hand, we have to figure out what was Jules' goal in writing, like the character of Jules. What's his goal in writing? But then we have the author, Auchincloss himself. What's his goal in giving us this thing that his character wrote? And, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I, I have this... I, maybe it's a weird thing. Maybe it's not. Maybe everybody thinks this about literature. I don't know. But I have this thing where I think that... Like a tick? Like you have a, it's like a tick, yeah. yeah. Where I, I tend to think that a situa- situation like this is, is actually more... I, I, it's, I actually can do more with interpreting myself as the reader than with maybe what Alconclos was trying to make me think here. Like you can, by, just by recognizing and sort of seeing your own response to it, identifying yeah, it. Yeah, so so it's it's less about, for me, it's less about whether Alconclos was trying to make me hate Frank or make me feel a certain way about Jules. Um, 
and and more about revealing to me the kind of person I am and and what kind of person I am if I read this and it makes me hate Frank or what kind of person I am if I read this and it makes me feel a certain way about Jules, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so so I, I would think about it less what Alkenklaus's goal was for evoking a particular emotion and more about what kind of person I, am I if I, based on the reaction I did have. Um, but then, I don't know. I don't, I'm not answering the question. I just changed it. So that's not fair. It's um, a very compassionate response though. Matt's responses. Yeah. Thank you. It's the nicest thing you've ever said. You get a point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, See, I was Matt like, yeah. to teach someone virtuous <laughs> <laughs> behavior. <laughs> I, I may be a lot like Frank. I just want admiration. and <laughs> <laughs> You just want people to give you compliments and tell you that you're better than you are. Is that what's, yeah. Um, Sergeant, what do you think? I mean, do you, I mean, is, is the conversation about whether this is a flaw really even, I mean, I, I don't want to be critical of the question, but is it really the point, I guess? It's a perceptive question because, and, and Matt's answer is also um, right in tune with the question because essentially it's the same as saying, you know, should we, should we really sympathize with Satan in Milton's Paradise Lost? Because what, your listener has recognized is that Jules is the, is the kind of anti-hero of the novel. And there's um, a human desire, I think, to, to side with the anti-hero because it's much easier to, to get on board with someone who has loads and loads of faults like we do. And I kind of feel a bit better about ourselves for that. But I don't think it's a flaw in the novel. I don't think the fact that Jules's memoir is, is so critical of Frank makes us or should make us uh, side with him against Frank. I think what Alkenkloss uses Jules's account for is, is to show Frank's capacity for compassion, forgiveness, understanding. Um, he realizes that Jules is a kind of messed up young man who is, is really craving something to strive against because Jules is in search of greatness. And um, I think Frank's response to Jules actually heightens our our admiration of Frank and his kind of magnanimous character that he's able to kind of see through all the manipulation and the tricks and the nastiness of Jules and, and realize that he should have been kinder to him. And the real, the really bad reflection we get, I think is of David Griscom, his father, that that casts a shadow on, on David Griscom. Um, but I think I think it's a really perceptive question because Jules is the antihero of the novel, very clearly. Mm-hmm. That okay. So that brings up a question. Nicole asks: Is there a villain in this book? If so, who and why? I really walked away from the book hating Griscom. Are we supposed to have? I no, that's an, I don't know which one she means. Are we supposed to have any sympathy for him at all, or am I missing something? I feel like he he more so than Jules is Prescott's biggest failure. So David Griscom. David. Ah, so is there a villain in this book? So we're talking about Jules as sort of an antihero, but then Nicole brings up this 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 question of of a villain, um, and then there's a little conversation that happens here, and then Nicole says. He just irritated me to no end. I think he did some things with good outcomes, but I think he maybe always had weird motives. Like he just seemed to really miss the mark on how to live. Um, even the way his house described and how he doesn't seem to have any genuine affection for every, every anything and he's always manipulating. Yeah. So, so it I seems that's like, just a clue that Louis Alvin doesn't know how to write men. 
It just makes David Griscom such a flat character. You know? <laughs> yeah. In comparison to all the uh, complex and sophisticated women. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody does have a comment on here in support of Harriet, by the way. Um, maybe I'll Amen. Let's get that question. On. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So, so the con- this question of a villain. So, I mean, th- there's a difference between an anti-hero and a villain. Are we, would we, would we accept that? Like, yeah, I think so. Difference yeah. of degree at least. Yes. But if you ask me what the difference is, I can't tell you. But I know what it is when I see it. Okay. That's not helpful. Um, maybe, isn't. maybe maybe we're wrong there. Maybe that is the same well, thing. But 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 like in contemporary fiction and movies and things like that, an antihero is sort of the main character of the book who's not necessarily a good guy, right? Mm-hmm. But, but we're not but talking also, about that. But also because he's the main, does it we we have some sort of weird attraction or sympathy attraction to him or sympathy for him? Yeah, which and many times that's that attraction or sympathy that we have to him is meant to be sort of like that's meant to be the point. That is meant yeah. you're meant to not you're not meant to like him, but then you do. So then you have to question your own. When I watched that questions. awful show Breaking Bad, and I found myself rooting for him to get away with his meth lab b- b- business, mm-hmm. and I'm like wanting him to not get caught, and I have I'm wrestling with myself over this. Like, why are you rooting well, for they the that guy to get away with it? Point of the show. And then I realized, no, it's because I want him to get away with it so that he has more time to repent. So I don't know. Maybe sometimes it's that for the antihero. But then with a villain, with, with an actual villain. Well, actual villain, know, you, you want destruction. Right. You want, you want him to, to be away. overcome. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so I would say, it, it, I would be fine with saying it's a matter of degree. But also I think it's, it, technically speaking... There's, I think there's a technical aspect to it. The villain is the one who is is the obstacle to be overcome by the hero of our story. Whereas an anti-hero can be the protagonist of the story. Yeah, not the driving force of the plot. Okay, yeah. right, right. Um, okay. So let's, let's say that... Let's, are we okay with using that definition for the sake of this conversation then? Sure. So then let's say that the villain is the person who has to be overcome. Would we agree that, the, that one of the Griscoms that there is a villain in the story or is it sort of, you know, non-traditional, non-archetypal in that sense? So it's man versus man, man versus nature, man versus God, man versus self, right? Yeah, so it's the villain. Sarah Jane, you want to answer the question? (laughs) I'm, yeah, I'm inclined to say that Dave Griscom is villainous because he is the incarnation of um, a kind of vacuous materialism as Nicole recognizes in her question. Mm-hmm. And that is the greatest threat to Justin Martyr and the ideals of Dr. Prescott. So then it becomes a battle of um, philosophies or ideologies. And I'm, yeah, I think Nicole is right that Dave Griscom is the embodiment of the, the kind of pressing modernity that, that's changing the nature of the school that Prescott tried to create. Mm. Um, and his family are an example of, of that's going to sound very harsh, but a sort of an example of his poor leadership as a father. What? I think that just sounds true. <laughs> I don't know. that. <laughs> can it be harsh if it's true? But what does that say about Frank then? I mean, his children didn't turn out exactly angelic. And neither did his students. Cordelia 
is the one we really get an insight into. But the other two sisters are sort of relatively neutral, aren't they? Yeah, it, I think they just say like, there's no point in talking to them because they're just going to tell you how great he is. Yeah. They're just going to defend him. Yeah. Yeah. Which at least suggests they love him. It does. Um, Or admire him. If we're going to make that distinction, like he does. I I wonder if, if I, I think my gut reaction would be to agree with you completely, Sarah Jane. Like I see Davis come as the, as the villain that has to be overcome because of his materialism and because of his manipulativeness. Mm. Then, then secondarily maybe, or as kind of alongside of it though, I, there, it, I do feel like there's some sort maybe, maybe this is in my head now because of the earlier question, but there is something in which I think Frank has to overcome himself in the, or at least overcome this very narrow way in which he's defined what the Justinian is going to be. Right. Frank has to overcome that definition. Mm-hmm. And it is a definition he created, right. Based on himself. So does that mean he has to broaden the definition? I mean, he has to allow for personality and which he hasn't been apparently seemingly hasn't been willing to allow for and, and now is, um, at least with Brian. And, but then also what's the other one? Didn't he start tennis club or something like that? I can't remember. Didn't we talk about that where he, yeah, he, Let he them made play baseball or something. Yeah. yeah, I don't like it when Frank makes concessions. The, the difficult thing. <laughs> well, we gotta talk about we gotta talk about that for a little while. <laughs> I'm an idealist though, and I, I I kind of think his ideals are right. And that the thing that Alcantos really gets the reader to struggle with in the novel is that without Dave Griscom, the school would probably fail because it would become outmoded and it would be financially uh, dissolute. And so there's this tension where all the idealism and archetypes of Frank are dependent on this this thick cut new money mm. of American business and that yeah. you can't have one without the other. Okay, that, that brings up a question here that I want to bring up, this question of idealism. Because Jamie says this, um, she, she compares this book to uh, The Remains of the Day. Have you, either of you read that, the Ishiguro book? Yes. No. Which we happen to have done on this podcast. Um, but she says, I think even if you don't, even if you haven't heard, you'll be able to answer this question. I think, Matt, you'll be. I have a question about it, about it after that. About Remains of the Day? Well, kind of. I've met Ishiguro. He came and spoke about how he wrote that novel. What? No kidding. That's cool. Yeah. I just, it's just, you know, it's Thanksgiving. I'm about to go on a road trip and I have to choose between that book, Remains. I'm, I'm actually always thinking about this on the way here. I'm either going to read Remains of the Day or The End of the Affair. Which one should I read first? You're on a road trip for a holiday, Remains of the Day. That's my vote. Sarah Jane? Yeah, if it's between those two, yeah. It's a road trip book. With my wife. So The End of the Affair. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's a... Um, I would... And it's also... Neither of them are that long. I would... Yeah, I would say Remains of the Day is a good holiday book. Okay. Thanks. Sorry for the... Sorry for the distraction. Just... <laughs> It's a close read show. We should, we should be giving each other book recommendations. That's uh, in line. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, right? We've already done Remains of the Day, but we're about, are we about to do yeah, we're, the Well, we're going to do the end of the affair uh, this spring, and I'm going to be sending out the schedule soon. Well, I guess I already sent out the official schedule. But Okay, so here's the question. The protagonists in both these novels spend their lives on the implementation and embodiment of a particular ideal with varied results and consequences. 
uh, in the remains of the day, it's a it's a butler who works for a l- lord, do yeah. something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I know, yeah, I, I know the premise of it. So I, I probably know enough to, well, maybe go on. Okay. So at the end of the novels, both characters seem to be reflecting and asking themselves in one way or another, was it worth it? And then Jamie says, as an idealist myself, who has made some rather drastic and countercultural decisions in order to live out my ideals, I cannot help but find in each of these novels a sobering reminder that how one chooses to live one's life has profound effects on those living alongside and in light of those choices for good or for ill. And which one it turns out to be sometimes depends entirely upon whom you're asking. So is this a cautionary tale then? What would Flannery say about that? (laughs) Go on. (laughs) Actually, was that Andalusia yesterday? She, um, it's a great, it's a great question from Jamie. I just, I'm, I'm always cautious of reading texts as a kind of, First and foremost, a didactic lesson in how to behave. Mm-hmm. This is clearly an art form where he's experimented with different kind of almost like a cubist perspective. He's put some mirrors up and, and tried to create an enigma through his narrative style. So um, while we, we probably do inevitably learn things from the characters about our own lives, I would just be careful about reading any novel as a, a flat lesson on how to live. I think it's more than that. But I haven't answered the question there at all. That was just a school mommy um, convention. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to respond to that, Matt, or do you want to also jump up on the soapbox? Well, does Sarah Jane want to answer it, or is that you just want to do you want to stop at this school well, okay. full stop? Let me, uh, can, can, it, can it be, I mean, can, can it be a cautionary, can we read it as a cautionary tale and, and still avoid doing what you're saying there? Yeah, I think we can learn from it. So the protagonists embody a particular ideal. Then the characters wonder whether that was worthwhile in the end and whether they sacrificed more than they gained. And how does that affect the people around them? I I suppose Alkenkloss shows us that the ideal that you're striving for has to be true and good and virtuous and robust. Otherwise, yes, ultimately, it's a vaudeville. You're a fake. But if you're, if you're trying to emulate, as Prescott is, I think, the virtue of a Christian God, then, then there's obviously a, a great reward in that, And even, even though you're never going to be able to do it perfectly. Um, I find Remains of the Day incredibly sad. Because I think the protagonist of the Remains of the Day realizes that perhaps he, w- he was pursuing an ideal that no longer exists. Whereas I think there's a kind of hope at the end of Alkintos's novel that then there are things worth fighting for and that Prescott was fighting for the right things. Mm. The other thing about Remains of the Day is that he d- the main character is um, recognizing that he was also working in support of someone else's ideals and that that may have not been as pure or yeah. in service of things that were as pure as the two of them thought. And so that becomes deeply, not just disillusioning, but like almost psychologically torturing, you know, to, to, to wonder what it is that you have inadvertently supported. And I don't know that this book captures that the same way. 
Don't worry. That's not a, that's not a, I feel like you guys are ruining that book for me right now. I feel like we're really talking around it. So we don't ruin it. <laughs> um, no, but in this, but in this book here, it's not so much. What have I accidentally supported so much as what are the risks of, of working towards a, uh, to, of believing in an ideal and, and are those risks worth that pursuit? And what's the collateral damage on the families, on the, the people around the protagonist, yeah. which I didn't really address in my answer. Yeah. yeah. Matt. I think it's, I don't, I don't, it's, I don't know. I don't think it, I wouldn't call it a cautionary tale. I, I don't, I like the way Hicks describes it or Hicks, the president describes it in Hicks book. Um, that it's a book that asks questions that cannot be answered. And, and I think it, I think it, it gives us a, a big question. The one that you guys have just been saying, right? Like, um, you know, this, this, this question about the pursuit of ideals and it, and it, and it doesn't, it can't say whether that's right or wrong or, or when it's right and when it's wrong or, or what it looks like to, for it to be right and what it looks like for it to be wrong. Like it just can present ways that it's been done or ways that it could be done. And then look at, you know, possible, the possible effects of doing it that way. And, Mm. and, and how, and what that happens, what happens in that situation to the students, the community, the families, the children, the spouses, the, the nation, the, the ideals, um, the possibility of it all, the impossibility of it all. So, I mean, I don't know what that means for remains of the day, not having read it, but I don't know if, if that same answer works there. I don't know if it remains of the day as a book that's asking questions that cannot be answered. I don't know. I mean, I like to think so just if it's a book about idealism, but I don't know if it tries to answer the question. Does he tell you the answers at the end that it was, would have been better not to have pursued it or does it, does it leave the questions unanswered? I don't know. There are sacrifices made. It's difficult to go too much into that question without spoiling the book for you mm. <laughs> or for any of the other readers. I think in terms of the effects um, on others, the pursuit of, of an ideal by, let's say, the father in a family, I think we're given, in a way, as many critical and hostile accounts as possible. Mm-hmm. from various characters in the novel. And yet Prescott still emerges as an admirable character. And he, perhaps Cordelia is one of his greatest critics from the kind of inner circle of people who know him. And I don't, I don't think his ideals or his pursuit of them have um, really ruined her. Perhaps she, some of her rebellious behavior is because she's trying to gain his attention and he's, he's working too much but he's so forgiving and helpful. Even when she makes terrible decisions, he, he keeps uh, intervening. You know, he kind of secures her divorce from her first Catholic husband. He welcomes her back into their home after that and kind of tries to rehabilitate her a bit. I don't think Harriet is desperately unhappy as his wife. Um, Brian is, is a kind of glowing reflection of some of the great things about Prescott. So I'm not sure that Prescott's effects on others are detrimental. He also kind of rescues Charlie, doesn't he, in a way. And he's spawned a generation of men who are willing to go and fight for their country. And make lots of money. And make lots of money for the economy. I think you're, I think, yeah, (laughs) I I think, I think you make a good point too. Cause I, 
I would have said, I would have said initially that we see, we see the failures, you know, we see the effects, the results of it on his family and his students and the community, whatever. Um, And yet, and yet we, I think, I think we walk away from the book still thinking that pursuing ideals is worth it. But, but you take it a step further. You you just, you just did it anyways. And said, not only that, but that Frank himself is still admirable, even in spite of his, the failures. Right. And I think that's a good point, right? Like it's not, it's, there's, there's something about the pursuit of the ideal that is worth it from the, from even the, even in spite of what happens to the, some of these characters and that Frank is still worth admiring in spite of what happens to some of these characters. And his, don't you find him, he has a kind of graciousness in that final banquet, the Jubilee banquet, where hmm. he realizes he can't, he can't press his idealism anymore, but he, without conceding anything, he just sort of graciously steps down from the stage, Mm -hmm. says, carry on. I've done what I could. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Next question is from Leslie. She quotes norms and nobility where David Hicks writes this is Prescott's failure inevitable. What is the solution to the paradox between educating for the world's fight and for the soul's salvation? end quote. So then here's Leslie's question after that. After reading The Rector of Justin, I fall between despair, what's the point of trying to classically educate if it cannot survive the tidal wave of culture, and then faith, God is greater than my shortcomings and failed works, and I'm called to do my best despite the outcome. As mentioned, The the Rector of Justin, which is the exact same initials when shortened as The Return of the Jedi, raises more questions than gives answers. And maybe we can at least discuss the big questions quoted above. And did you all find more answers than questions in rereading The Rector of Justin? Although, how does one find more answers than questions? Don't answers depend upon the... They have to be equal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> At least. Um, so... At most. There's this, this, uh, this sort of dichotomy between despair and faith that that is coming up in this, in this book. Uh, she's saying she kind of vacillates between them. So wh- where do you guys fall on this? The, the, the question that she ends up asking is, do you find more uh, questions than answers in this book? And I think you kind of, one of you just sort of said that the book seems to offer more questions than answers, but you know, Hicks, Hicks is asking is Prescott's failure inevitable. Like, is there a solution between this paradox between educating for the world's fight and for the soul's salvation? Um, and this, Leslie says, this is sort of a you know, at times it feels feels like this 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 dichotomy is this paradox is sort of despair inducing. Do you, do you feel that way, Matt? I I think if if I if I was looking at education, the goal of education to be that my child or my student or my students are going to take on the world's fight at the scale, at the world scale, the world level that my students were going to somehow be responsible or required to have some significant impact in the history books. Like, Oh, this is the day that the little Matt Bianco changed the world. Um, Then I would, I would be in despair. But if I look at it because, because of, of the, the way she worded, it, I think, I mean, what she says in the, in her question, but if I'm looking at it from the perspective of 
can I, can I educate them to abide in their family, their home, their community, their neighborhood, their job in a way that they love their neighbors and they love God, then I don't, I don't feel despair there at that level. I feel like it's possible and, and the faith part of it, you know, makes all, makes it even more so that, that it's a, it's, it's a question of scale for me at which, what point, what point I veer towards despair and what point I find myself being more upheld by faith. That's it. I, I, I gotta think about that. Um, so I'm just going to do that. Sit here and think about it. And I'll let Sarah Jane talk now. Well, <laughs> sounds well, like I didn't Max, get any points for that. Sarah Jane. I don't think I got any points. I think it was, it was <laughs> keeping your answer to give it a mere point. So that wasn't a point scoring answer. That was, <laughs> that was profound. Um, and I agree with you. I think if you, your family and your children are, obeying those commandments to love God first and, and love your neighbor as yourself, then that is engaging in the world's fight. There's, there's nothing else you can do. And the soul's salvation is through engaging in the world's fight. That, that's what we're called to do as Christians. And, and that is, we do kind of fail forward as teachers, I think, and as soon to be parents, I'm sure, with this sense that, um, you know, can't, yeah, I can leave lessons feeling absolutely despair sometimes that I haven't, I haven't taught them anything or I've modeled something really badly and encouraged all kinds of vices, but, um, but that despair is in relationship with faith always that you, that you always, you know, get up the next day and you do it again and you do it better and you, you try to do your best. So, um, I think make it, making it a dichotomy between the soul's salvation and the world's fight is a very unhelpful way of dividing this. I think mm. that it's both together because, you know, the, the, um, the great commission is that all authority in heaven and earth have been given to Christ. Therefore we go and we, we, we do the work of um, filling and subduing the world and taking, trying the light of the gospel. And I think, I think that essentially is kind of what Prescott is trying to do. And that it can't, it can't really be a retreat into um, the kind of the tower, the bell tower of Justin Martyr, that he has to go out and fight the battles and sometimes lose them in order for this to be, um, to be affirming of, of his faith, I think. Is that helpful at all? I don't know. Do you think that he's, that he gets that distinction with at the, well, if, if we accept my distinction about the scale, but I think you were, I think, um, is he making that distinction or is he trying to fight it at, trying to train them to fight at a, at a level perhaps higher than they could, could be trained for. Like it's more than just loving their immediate neighbors and family, but almost to the point of neglecting immediate neighbors and family in order to go fight at the level of the UN or something. I don't know. I think he does preach service and service of your neighbor all the time. And he preaches it in a way that he says, and don't expect any rewards immediately either. Uh, and I think that's why he clashes so much with Jules. Hmm. Um, we don't get a lot of detail in the novel about the kinds of things that the boys actually do in service to the community. But um, that, that moment sticks in my mind where Prescott is very 
disconcerted by the fact that the boys aren't queuing for their supper because they're not kind of, you know, saying no, sir, after you, you go and you, you take your meal first. I'm sure there'll be plenty for me too. Um, and, and so I think he does try and teach that love of neighbor in a very, uh, fraternal sense in the school, in the boys' relationships. And that again, why he objects to the trot so much is because it's, it's dishonest. The boys aren't serving each other well by cheating or lying. Um, and these little kind of nuances are the things that bother him. Lizette says this, I think this is related. She says, this book reminded me uh, so much of teaching at a charter school, which we wanted to reach, uh, which wanted to reach undeserved, under, (laughs) not undeserved, underserved students. But in the end, schools are institutions and institutions require several leaders. And with shared responsibilities, there is more acceptance of change. As the school, as Prescott school grew, he lost his individual relationship with students and control of his vision. He was no longer the acting God, but the idol. Would Prescott have been more content with a smaller school, which still reflected his dream in which he was not, I guess the, uh, had not sort of became the idol. seems like he speaks to that. Like he say, he says, I'd be, you know, he doesn't want it to become as big as, as the board of directors pushes it to be. But on the other hand, it would change how people think about him and his reputation. So what do you think? Would, would he have been content with that, Matt? Yes, if he had known that that the alternative was what happened. Like, I think at some point, you, you mean like, if he had enough foresight to see what was. Yeah, and I think he probably, I think he did, but I don't, I don't know if he knew exactly at what point, at what point it changes. Yeah. So later in his life, he's looking back and he's saying, "Well, we made, we made mistakes." Yeah, but I think he, I think he knew beforehand that it was going to change the nature of the school. Hmm. I just don't know if he knew what that would mean exactly what that would mean right and so i think if he knew better what that would mean he would have preferred or been happy to have i think he'd been content satisfied with the smaller school i'd like to think he would but i don't know why i think that i mean i can't point to the text and say here's why i think that i just think it but then it it got away from like i think there's i mean at some point you're you're you have you know, you're the thing that you're responsible for and you want, you're, you're willing and ambitious enough to, to want that to be bigger because you think you can reach more people. You can. Yeah. Well, yeah. Whatever. Right. Serve more people. But at, but at some point, you know, that it's going to get to, to a size where you're not actually able to be responsible for it anymore until to, to care for it anymore. But you don't know where that is, right? Like if you're, what, what, you know, in John 10, Jesus says something about, you know, the shepherd will lay down his life. The good shepherd will lay down his life for the sheep, but the, the, um, what are he, what does he call his assistants? The assistant shepherd or sheep herders, right? The, the, um, those people will not, they're just, they're there to get their paycheck and move on. Like the, the, the goodness of the sheep isn't what matters to them. So in a dangerous situation, they abandon the sheep, but how many sheep can you have before you can't do it alone anymore that you have to bring in hired hands? And then, and then those sheep people, dog, man. Yeah. And then those people don't, right. And then those people don't care for the sheep in the same way that you do. And it's, I think it's the same thing with the school, with any business, right? At some point it grows beyond the scale that you can personally care for it. And the people who come in to help you can be people who love it the way you do, or they can be hired hands who are there for 
you know, some other reason, typically in, you know, capitalism for capital reasons. And I, but you don't know exactly, is it when I have 98 sheep, 99 sheep, 100 sheep, Mm -hmm. 110 sheep? When, when does that happen? Yeah. And so he, I think he was pushing it to try to find that. And then it went beyond where he might've wanted it to. Mm. Sarah Mm. Jane. The problem that Prescott encounters with the school getting big is, is that he does have a personal ambition to be the greatest headmaster in New England. And Harriet discloses this to Brian mm-hmm. when Dave Griscom starts pushing for a, 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 you know, an enhanced kind of admissions process and more students at the schools. So that, that's one of the tensions in Frank Prescott's character, I think, is that his pride comes in and he does want a bigger school, even though he doesn't sort of publicly confess that. Um, and so in a way, he compromises or sacrifices on his personal relationships and the, the integrity of, and the quality of the school in order to uh, aggrandize his reputation. Um, but, and I think that's, that's one of the difficulties there, is that he, I don't think he does it to reach more boys. I think he does it because he's in pursuit of greatness himself. And that's okay, I think, but there is a sense that his ambition, uh, his, um, his ambition makes the, the school become something different. Like it gets away from him. Yeah. That he's able to abide with it just being small, that he wants to be great. You're a more honest reader than I am. I appreciate that because like you just say what it is, right? Like it says that exactly what you just said. The book tells us that. And I'm over here like, no, I think he, I think he knows. I think he regrets. I think he, he he was only going, going as far as he could (laughs) because I, because I love Frank so much. I don't want to say anything bad about him. And you're like, no, actually the book says he's ambitious and he wants to be the greatest headmaster in all of England. So, (laughs) and I'm like, no, no, he's humble. And, Full of humility. (laughs) He does learn that in the novel. Um, But I don't know. I'm maybe being a bit flat and literalist reading (laughs) reading what it says. And perhaps it does require a bit more exegesis. Well, I'm I'm just trying to save save the appearances because I don't want to. It's funny that you mentioned this because Austin asks a a two-part question here that I think is worth bringing up. He says, first, do you think that the close reads group and listenership in general is at greater risk of misreading or overestimating this particular book because we are more sympathetic to Prescott's ideals than he says than the author is here, but I think we could probably just Mm. put an end stop there because we are sympathetic to Prescott's ideals. So is it possible that we are, is that a, is it? I would say that yes, probably anybody who sympathizes with somebody's ideals is at a greater risk of misreading or overestimating a particular book or any work of art or a person in general. So I think probably we are at over uh, are at risk. So then the question becomes: Is that have we done that? If I hadn't just said out loud that you do that, that I that I'm doing <laughs> that, I would have. I and you asked this question before I said that, I would have denied it. No, we're not at greater risk than that. But then I just did it, so now I have to admit it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I kind of walked you into that one a little bit there. That was a little unfair. Sarah Jane, what about you? What do you think? <laughs> is Austin calling us to be more cynical in our reading? Or, or is he suggesting we're being too 
we're being too idealistic. Not well, critical enough. I think we'd have to ask Austin that question because I don't know that his question is particularly. Uh, I mean, I guess we could read between the lines and say that maybe, but he didn't put like yeah. a. Uh, uh, there's no emojis, little emojis, there's little no. hashtag cynicism, yeah. ghost cynicism, right? Yeah, like that's yeah, what we know. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a subtlety to what Alkin Kloss is doing, though, uh, as we've discussed already, in that he's giving us critical, hostile portraits and setting himself the challenge of creating an admirable character through that narrative frame. And so I, I think I actually had to, had to search quite hard to find what it was that was so admirable about Prescott. And I think Alkinclos requires the reader to do that. Um, mm. I think it would be easy to read the novel as a kind of Dave Griscom and see, see Prescott as the relic, the, um, the kind of outmoded, static, brittle idol that, ne- that needs to be kind of recast or set aside and, you mm. know, onwards into modernity with our kind of factory makers Mm. ideals about education where you get as many in through the door and, um, and every, and everybody kind of does the same thing. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't think we've misread it. No. (laughs) (laughs) That's a bit defensive. (laughs) Well, so Austin said his follow-up question is he mentions that Ockelhaus wrote an essay called origin of a hero and then he okay. says, how should close readers treat commentary provided by an author on their own work? Does taking the work on its own terms mean that we should ignore this kind of extraneous material or that we should seek it out? And we talk about this concept from time to time over the years on, on this podcast and on various other sister shows, so to speak. Um, but, it, you know, given that Auchincloss himself wrote an essay of this kind, it might be worth addressing quickly. Sergio, what do you think about this question? And I I would say, let's not spend too much time on this because there's one more question that I want to bring up here that I think is, is a crucial wrap up question. Uh, but, but I think it's about women, but it's okay. Maybe there's two then, (laughs) but it's worth it. But, uh, but I think it's worth at least uh, addressing quickly. And Sarah Jane, you've never gotten to it at least, uh, you know, chime in on this particular topic. So what, what are your thoughts on, uh, now you don't, now I have I, never chimed in on this question. On, uh, yeah. On any other thing that we've ever done. Yeah, sure. Anything ever, ever done. <laughs> uh, how, so how should tr- close readers treat commentary provided by an author on their own work? Does just taking the work on its own terms mean we should ignore this kind of extraneous material or that we should. May, I, may I ask some questions about demography before I answer that? Are you and your listeners mostly in the South in America? I would say we are mostly in America, but I don't know that we are mostly in the South. Not mostly in the South. But okay. we are we are in the South currently. Yeah. <laughs> the David, David, and David and I. David and I are currently. The new criticism, the new yep. criticism came out of the South. Yep. Um, so I can see where there would be a, a kind of an allegiance to that. The idea that, you know, you could pick up a poem off the floor and you don't need to know who wrote it or when. And you just deal with the text for its own sake, um, and you can you can still get a full appreciation of its beauty and its meaning and everything else. I think there's nothing wrong with that. But if if there's more t- material available, why deny yourself more insight, context, um, especially when when the the writer's telling you something about his intentions and his artistic vision. Um, 
I'm I, I'm a kind of maximalist. I'd say give me as much as possible. I'll just keep reading because <laughs> we're not because we're not gluttons, Sarah Jane. It's moderation. That's why we deny ourselves. <laughs> I'm an Epicurean, <laughs> <laughs> an Epicurean reader. You yeah. got to write a book about that. This is that's brilliant. <laughs> give me all of it, and then I'll have the dessert wine and the handmade chocolates and everything else. The, 10, the, 11, 12 courses. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, it, so then are you suggesting that, that the John Kerr Ransoms and the Robert Penn Warrens and, and whoever else was, who else was in the, the new, the new critics, uh, Alan Tate, are you saying that those people were just gluttons for punishment then? I think there was a political reason for their um, kind of austerity and their discipline about isolating the text. Because it was to do with saying, look, I don't need to have a, a top degree in literature or theology from Harvard in order to be able to read a poem, which is fair enough. I agree with that point. But if, you know, if, you, if you're capable of deepening your understanding, enriching your learning and, and, and finding out more, then why not? Why stubbornly kind of stick to that sort of isolationist policy? All I know is that, is that in, in this community of readers and listeners, um, that if you what is if, about what are you about to say? If you talk about a book, and you're and you have an in- interpretation of that book, and you quote that author, who the who the author where and the author has written elsewhere in affirming your view, and the person you're talking to agrees with you, then they will be then there will be this overwhelming approval of going to the author's external outside sources as for writing. <laughs> but if you quote it and it's affirming your view and the person disagrees with that interpretation of the book or the story and disagrees with the author's, with the author's own interpretation of the story, then they will, then the response will always be something like, we all know that even authors don't know the meaning of their own work. <laughs> and they'll, and then they'll quote an author who said that to prove the point. Well, here's the thing about this though. So, yeah. so, the act of reading is an extremely different creative act than the act of actually writing. Agreed. And so, mm. like, you think about so there's the famous story of Flannery O'Connor, right? Mm-hmm. And I, Graham and I were working on we're working on a feature about Andalusia, her home, her home farm, for the winter issue of the Former Magazine that we published. And so they at the museum that is her house right now, they actually have a display in there where they have a bunch of black hats that belong to her mother and her. And they've got them all on display, like 30 of them or something like that. And they, re- they relate the famous story where she's giving a lecture at a college and the young man says, so, so the, 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 she's, he's got all these theories about what the black hat on the misfit represents. And mm. O'Connor says, he said he, and he's asking her, I need, I need to know, I need to know what the black hat represents in this story. It represents something. Right. And she <laughs> says, she's like, well, in the South where I live, most of the men wear black hats. It doesn't, he's like, no, but it represents Christ or, or the devil or like, off your head. <laughs> right. And he, and she's like, she's like, I've, she, in this letter, she writes, I, I, he went away very disappointed in me. <laughs> and, and it's like, it's like it ruins this, this person's estimation of her vision as a creator. Mm-hmm. And for her, she's not, you know, she's not necessarily trying to capture some archetypal concept or metaphor when she does this. She's trying to capture something that was true to life but the thing is on the on the other hand i think you can also make a case that that things get beyond like the creative act takes things beyond what the author 
like met, the intended to create is an archetype whether we're aware of it or not right and so right. It, it it ends up being put into the story without even realizing why it's being put into the story as an archetype well, and, I, and, and i also would right? say that Perhaps. in in o'connor's case even if she didn't mean to she's speaking into a tradition mm-hmm. that has been manifesting meaning through images as long as stories have been told so on mm-hmm. the one hand there's that case and then on the other hand she could be trying to subvert that you know yeah mm-hmm against that extreme symbolist imagist movement around. Right, right exactly, yeah. yeah. So, so, so both of those things can be true. And then on the other hand, I think that you, you, I, I think you can make the case that she's being uh, comically obtuse <laughs> when she makes a comment like that to a kid, like that she's basically mm-hmm. going above and beyond what she actually believes. Like my suspicion is that she would say, yes, there is this tradition, but also like if you read that way, I think what she's saying to that young student is if you read that way, according to this, you know, this imagist movement, as you said, then you're going to be missed the forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. And so she, I think she's being extreme in the way she approaches that. So people say things, including mm-hmm. authors say things about their own work for various reasons. And I think you need to take a, we need, we generally need to take those things that they say with a grain of salt, because every time says someone says something about their work, it doesn't mean that they're, you know, there's many reasons why someone might say something in a lecture or to in a letter to somebody, or they might contradict themselves. And that doesn't mean that when they, if they, might, if, they if they interpret their own work in two different ways, it doesn't mean that they don't know what their work is about or what they were trying to do. Or, you know, sometimes people change their minds about things or they've got different contexts in which they're saying it. Mm. So, you know, I think that I, I agree with what you're saying, Sarah Jane, in as much as, you know, I think there is a, there is a, um, there's value in sort of being an Epicurean reader, right? As, 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 as you put it, that there is value in reading as much as you want about that an author says about things, but also it doesn't mean that, that, you know, everything that they wrote was inspired or that they mm-hmm. even know that themselves too well, or that, you know, they might change their mind. And so I think that like there is a sense in which we can trust an author too much about what they think their actually work is going to mean to people throughout history. Because I think, sorry, go on. Well, I was just, cause sorry, I'm, I'm on, I'm on my, I climbed up on my own soapbox, but I, all I was going to say is I was going to conclude that by saying what they say matters, but also the way a work takes on its own life throughout the centuries is unpredictable. What they say matters Insofar as they agree with my interpretation, <laughs> I think is what it boils down to. No, I'm just kidding. Well, no, that's, that's not what yeah. I'm saying. I, just to be clear, because I, I don't think that it's about interpretation. I think it's about the way a work fits into centuries of tradition. And that is unpredictable. Mm. I mean, I'm nodding like my a, head instead of a, saying words. Yeah. There's a certain poetry in the way that a book takes on its own life in the tradition of literature throughout history. Okay, Sarah Jane, go ahead. I you think Sarah Connor. She writes a lot about humility and I, I agree with the, the kind of direction of the readers, um, Austin's question, which is, you know, we want to avoid a kind of intellectual snobbery, which is, well, I've read um, Alkenkloss's essay about his own work and actually says this. So I have a superior understanding of the novel to you because, you know, you haven't done your background reading. I think that's the wrong kind of attitude, obviously, but I don't, I think if you're, if you're interested and you've read the book and you want to know more and you've got time, then there can be a lack of humility in saying, you know, no, actually I'm not going to read anything else about it because I'm happy with my own opinion about it. And that's the most important thing. Yeah. I'm and all so, I need. Yeah. 
So we yeah. kind of need to have a humility to the text and then also just remember that, yeah, our opinions can be wrong and, and we can learn something more by reading around. I just looked up Alkin Kloss's essay, Origin of a Hero, and I got Shira, Princess of the Power. Which is a British, <laughs> maybe you didn't have that in America, I don't know, but it was a British cartoon about a heroine when I was little. So Yeah, we had that when I was little. Yeah. It was He-Man <laughs> and She-Ra, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I hope that isn't what's behind the text, because that would drastically change my opinion of the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, be careful, right? <laughs> You dig deeper at your own at your own peril, <laughs> and just um, don't use Google. It's useless. Epicurean reader now has to watch that cartoon just yeah. to make sure they can understand what this book's yeah. about. Yeah, exactly. yeah, I think you're. I think you're right though that 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 you know if we just count on ourselves, then we are both limiting ourselves and probably thinking too much of ourselves. Hmm. I think that's what you're trying to say, right? My, but but I yeah, I mean, I think that's what she's saying. So I'm going to answer for her. Yes, I think that's what she's yeah. saying. Good job. Yeah. Um, <laughs> According to my interpretation of what Sarah Jane said, that's what yeah. she was saying. What she thinks she was saying doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> unless it agrees with what you're saying. Unless it agrees yeah. with what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> so we're going to need to look, look at her letters after the pod. Like in a year, we'll look back at the letters that she right. sends. Right. I think though that that when we... when we re- I mean, not though. I, I, I think when we read Alkin Claus's essays, those become a part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm. But yeah. I think what we tend to do is take those and make them authoritative in a way that we, that like beyond the book, like they go, yeah, they yeah. go above the book in the hierarchy. Right. Right. They go, they go above the book in the hierarchy. Um, and, and then the experience of the book with myself and, and the tradition, uh, I mean, just in the, the larger story. So then, so then we almost don't even need to read the book. We know what the book's about because he told us in this essay. I don't know if he actually says that in the essay. I haven't read it, but I'm yeah. just saying hypothetically. Um, and when it, when it should be just a, another part of the conversation in the same way, not not in the same way, but kind of in the same way that, that this podcast is a part of that conversation, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm not authoritative on, you know, anything I've said here is not, is not authoritative on how the rector of Justin should be understood and read, but it, hopefully it becomes a part of a person's conversation about yeah. it. Right. Yeah, or yeah, with, yeah. with it rather with the text. Yeah. Although what Sarah Jane says will will take us authoritative. Most of the time. She teaches at Eaton. Because I have an accent. An accent. An accent yeah. yeah. So so then if we it's like I just swooned. Yeah. Just the accent. David, can yeah. you keep the smelling salt on me? Uh no, I know. You're you'll be fine. You're better <laughs> than you know. Okay, so so if we're trying to visualize this then let's imagine can we can we imagine that 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 the tradition itself is a giant whiteboard or a blackboard? What do you guys call them in England? Chalkboards, blackboards, whiteboards. What do you use at Eden? Dry erase boards. Uh, I use an iPad Pro. Sorry. Okay. So oh my it. gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so terrible. <laughs> so we're going to go with, uh, we're just going to go with a big cried. giant chalkboard. <laughs> okay. Let's imagine this is a giant chalkboard. And that's, that's the tradition. <laughs> and, and along that tradition are, along that blackboard are a bunch of parallel lines. So are the what is this oh, analogy? Okay, hold on. I'm is just trying to Blondie, is that a Blondie album? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Google it. Um, okay. So there's so just help me out here. I'm trying to think through okay, this. Okay, okay. So Sorry. when we're thinking about the nature of the tradition, you have troublemakers, rabble rousers. Um, are the 
are the extraneous stuff as as Austin puts it, the to say it's a book of letters or essays that they write or lectures they give or interviews that are given with an author. Are those things uh, one parallel line that run parallel to say the works of writers? So I mean obviously with with something like Homer or Shakespeare, we don't have that separate track. We don't have that you know Shakespeare didn't write essays about his own work that we have anyway, which actually now that I'm thinking about maybe the model that all writers should just go ahead and take. Um, but if, if it was good enough for Shakespeare and Homer, right. Um, so then is one track, the works themselves and then parallel with them is, is the extraneous material and we should see them that way within the tradition or is the tradition, the books themselves. And then outside of the tradition is the extraneous material. Or David, what is, would your it, father say about this very enlightenment linear approach? Well, that's this is that's the question I'm asking. <laughs> your, your father would draw this as a triangle, and at one end of With the triangle, circles as well. Exactly. Uh, one 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 angle of the triangle would be the author and his circumstances. Another angle on the triangle would be the the artifact itself, mm-hmm. and and. It's interaction with the world it, uh, that it's going through, right? Not mm-hmm. just yeah. when it was written, but as mm-hmm. it's passed through since then. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other corner would be the reader and then the reader's mm-hmm. personal circumstances. Um, I think that's what Dorothy Sayers would do too. But I like the blackboard with the parallel lines. So I'm sorry for derailing that. I was just being obnoxious. Yeah, I'm a little offended. You called you, you accused me of being enlightenment. In, uh, that was being hard. Enlightenment. I know. <laughs> I, because I feel. I mean, I, I I feel a little. I feel some sympathy. <laughs> I, Sarah Jane's kind of the anti-hero now. I yeah. think of this, this episode. Just so. <laughs> yeah. not the villain. Not the villain. <laughs> but no, we don't need to overcome. But what would I be in the triangle? <laughs> I got nothing. The reader, I, I, and I don't mean it to be like linear in that sense. I'm trying to think in terms of what is the interaction between. I mean, do you think that the triangle? I mean, I know Dad would. He talks about this triangle thing. Um, in the and middle I, of the triangle is the logos. But but I wonder some. Okay, sure. All of those things are. But I wonder sometimes if if he's just trying to he uses a triangle to avoid being enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> so Sarah Jane can't come like the oh. It's- very enlightenment uh, yeah, chalkboard you have there. Yeah, it's very very <laughs> linear of you. Um, because <laughs> I mean, the concentric circles is maybe I, to me. To me, when you talk about concentric circles, there's too much that's outside of the circles that you then have to debate about. Like if you have concentric circles, you're trying to find the place where these things all interact, right? Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. you're just saying that there's things that are outside of the circles where they don't interact, and that to me just causes a whole new set of questions that is problematic or at least raises a new conversation that we don't have time for here. So I was trying to say, what are the things that I was trying to go with parallel lines, I guess, not because of further, because of the linear nature of a parallel line, <laughs> but because of, because of the nature of the relationships between the things. But lines are an archetype and that are, that's fair. That the significance of that archetype came through the symbols, whether you intended to or not. <laughs> Even this is fair in the South, but <laughs> while wearing black hats, <laughs> this is that's a fair criticism, and yet I am I, I am limited by the scope of language. <laughs> are you trying to see if there's like 
what the hierarchy would be though like okay so that's what that, that was my next question because we sort of think of things in this sort of hierarchy right like that was that was the question that that got brought up a minute ago is the hierarchy the books at the top where where is the author in the hierarchy where is the extra thing that the author writes and what happens if the author contradicts him or herself so then given that the author at times is going to controverse her contradict him or herself, then it would seem that the book has to go above those things. But maybe then the hierarchy itself is a flawed way of looking at things in the first place. So maybe a parallel lines is a better approach is what kind of where we, I was going to go. What if we visualize those parallel lines as a kind of musical score and we'll put a treble clef and a bass clef at the start. And then you have all the other kind of little bits of information as um, notes in this this tune of the text and what we're looking for is a kind of harmony and maybe the main strain, strain of, of uh, the tune is the book that we're reading. And then above and below it, we have high notes and low notes and sometimes they harmonize and sometimes they don't. And it's kind of... So is the book the melody? Yeah. And you're trying to listen for, uh, for the harmony with, with other things outside of the text related to it that chime with it. And if they do, that's great. And if they don't, then maybe, you know, maybe they don't belong there. But eh, that doesn't um, sound right. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think you kind of have to. No, no I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Nonsense. Uh, no, no, no. I'm just kidding. That was so. That was so neoclassical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I actually kind of that works. It it works better for me than the whole concentric circles thing, and yeah. the hierarchy, and it and it and it speaks to the sort of experience of like the way we experience a work of literature. The the problem is I just read that um Caldecott book Be- Beauty, Beauty in the for Truth's sake. Oh Beauty for Truth's sake, yeah. Yeah. And it's all about the harmony of the cosmos. So well and, that, and I, the harmony thing I think is helpful too because it also helps us to see that sometimes what what might Im- immediately at least appear to be discordant mm. could at if we could raise ourselves to another level and kind of transcend it for a moment, um, the open ourselves to more information, to more conversation, to more contemplation, we might find that actually the discord isn't discorded, that it's a greater harmony. There's a greater harmony with it. Um, kind of like yeah. the, what is it? The Melkor story, you know, in Silmarillion. Do you read British literature? <laughs> <laughs> I, I hardly read anything. I just watch television all day, <laughs> play violent video games. <laughs> <laughs> so I, that's interesting. The idea of harmony is interesting too, because essentially what we're trying to do here, when we say what we're trying, you know, what the student does when he goes to Flannery O'Connor and asks this question is he's trying to harmonize some sort of dissonance with it. You know, he's trying to resolve a dissonance or find a harmony yeah. within his own questions. Mm-hmm. And so I, I like the musical analogy because it speaks to what we are all trying to do when we turn to an author's writing or when we have discussions about a book and when we listen to a podcast where people you know, try to rewrite the entire course of literary criticism <laughs> over the last 200 years um, or summarize it into one analogy. Um, but so the harmony is... On a backboard, no less. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Not on an iPad Pro. I mean, I do feel like... Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know what I was... What You guys just distracted me, but... <laughs> Sorry. What, you know that story about Ray Bradbury, right? Where he went to... Was it Stanford or UCLA or something? And he was talking oh, yeah, to yeah. a college... A freshman college college freshman literature, English class or something, literature class. And he's talking to them and then they do in Q and A or whatever. They start telling him that his book is about that Fahrenheit yeah. 451 is about, um, is about, uh, censorship. Yeah. And he says, no, it's not. 
and they proceed to argue with him of what his book's about as he's telling them what it's not about. It's I always I the way I always imagine that story is that they think he's messing with them. The students probably yeah. because mm-hmm. because the because like the critics have decided this is what the book is about and thus it is about they've been taught that for yeah. so long. And it says it right on the cover of the book. It says and on one of the editions it says, you know, the uh, whatever world's greatest book on censorship or something like that. You know, it's funny because Gre- <laughs> last night Graham and I uh, we went to see a movie called Jojo Rabbit. Which um, it says afterwards, we, I was reading about it and it says on all the posters, an anti-hate satire. And I was like, that's, that's, a, that's not what this is about. Mm. <laughs> but like the marketing decided that's what to put on the cover yeah. because, in the, because it's a troubling concept. This little boy has an imaginary friend who's Adolf Hitler. And he's like in Hitler youth. And so he's... So the, the, it's, a, it's a troubling story and they don't trust people to get that it's satire. Huh. So they have to put on the cover, it's anti-hate, right? Yeah. Um, so anyway. Uh, I see. And um, that, but that's what Flannery O'Connor says as well, isn't it? You know, the whole story is the meaning. Otherwise we get reductive. Um, and we can ch- change a whole film or a book into, you know, this. the message of this poem is this. Yeah. And they're not really about messages. Yeah, very few people set out to make a message you know, mm-hmm. to make a story about a message, which is, brings us to this final question I need to ask. Reed asks, how does Justin Martyr exemplify or not exemplify what good education should look like? And is Prescott a good mentor, uh, mentor to emulate? I, I, I want to kind of do this as a final thoughts thing. So what I want to do is ask each of you to come up with um, one thing, one way that Justin Martyr, the school, not necessarily this book itself, but one way that Justin Martyr exemplifies or does not exemplify what good education should look like. Not because I think that this is a book that is trying to teach us lessons <laughs> at, you know, at the outset, but because as a book about education, being read by educators, it's still worth saying, what have I discovered or what am I thinking about? Um, how has it made me think about what a good education should look like, even if we don't necessarily want to assume that Auchincloss is telling us that there is one way to do education? Mm-hmm. I think it's at least an interesting question as a, to kind of follow up on the conversation we've just been having about in which I was accused of being an enlightenment pro enlightenment and at the end of a conversation about it was a spurious accusation <laughs> i think you got negative points for that one you I'm just saying. I lost although i now i'm fine because she now just accused she just accused herself of, of making a spurious double accusation. points double so yeah you're, you're back up yeah <laughs> matt what do you think how does justin martyr exemplify or not exemplify good education i'll go first but sarah jane you can't copy my answer you have to come okay up okay well you can't steal what i'm thinking Okay. okay. All right. So we probably shouldn't be on the three. Same on three, we'll <laughs> say at the same time. <laughs> no, oh. Matt, go ahead. I think that I think it's the fully integrated aspect of life at Justin Martyr that is education. Like I think I think hmm. for many of us, we can think of education as this as this thing where you go learn these specific skills or these specific bits of information, um, and it's separate from from the religious life, it's separate from, or the spiritual life, it's separate from um, the physical life, it's separate from everything, manners, work, all of that stuff. And, and at Justin Martyr, what you get is a fully integrated life where, where learning math, learning the, your, you know, reading and writing, learning science um, is all of those things are integrated with God, with 
physical fitness and activity with, you know, the, the way you line up to go into, you know, to eat, to eat lunch, um, with the chapel, with prayer, with, uh, how you behave during reading time back at the, what do they call them? Barracks? No dorms, whatever the house, you know, where you sleep, your sleeping quarters, um, barracks, uh, you know, all of those things, right. Everything is fully integrated there. And the whole life is an integrated life. And, and I think that's, I mean, I think it's, embodied in the school itself throughout the course of the text, the book, but also in that, in those scenes where we get those glimpses of how he led his classroom, how Frank led his classroom, right? Where even just in the conversation, he's trying to integrate, you know, history and theology and philosophy and ethics and life and all of those things. Right. So um, I think that's, that's my one thing. Sarah Jane, do you have something different? (laughs) (laughs) Slightly. Um, I think what Justin Martin gets right is actually what we should, as you know, the whole society should get right, um, which is that worship and rest come first and everything flows out of that. So um, Joseph Piper's essay, or Piper, I should say, Leisure, the Basis of Culture, argues that front and centre of any flourishing society or community of people would be um, Sabbath rest and temple worship first mm-hmm. and everything else flows out of that. And I, I think that is what we see at Justin Martyr. Mm-hmm. They start the day with chapel and they have Sunday chapel and Sunday rest. And that is the kind of, um, that's the priority. And all the other things they do are in light of that or downstream from that. And I think if, if worship is done well and faithfully, and with with an earnest heart, then all the activity that comes out of that rest is productive and good, and um, and that's why it's such a kind of sacrilegious thing for Jules Griscom to lock Prescott out of the chapel and to attack the chapel mm. and to attack, attack mm. the, the picture of um, Phillips Brooks as well, um, and why that's why Jules Griscom understands it's so important to attack. The, the centrality of worship at Justin Martyr in order to impact it downstream. It impacts the, you know, it's attacking first things. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, mm. But I'd, I'd recommend that people ask the article or, or essay or apologia, if you like, of leisure. I think it's superb reading for people involved in education. Mm. That's like a... a <laughs> 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 All right. Well, um, this has been another great conversation. We've, it's amazing how long we've gone on each of these episodes. It's just plenty to talk about. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I've lo- maybe I'm just losing control or I don't know. <laughs> well, I do want to say that I'm sorry if Sarah Jane and I got a little out of hand on this episode. Yes. Apologies. We hope you won't keep us from being on the show together again. Like won't punish us. You mean like I feel attacked and feeling defensive and are you accusing me of being thin skinned? <laughs> <laughs> I think what really needs to happen, David, is you need to play more football in the snow. More football in the snow. <laughs> well, Not Thanksgiving so is coming. So, <laughs> sitting with Harriet reading yeah. poetry, we, Henry James. We didn't. I didn't give you a chance to. You know, I didn't pitch you against one another on the women in this book. Um, 
but but there was always um, you know we, you could always argue about it over email and we could publish it online. If we <laughs> there, there was Sarah Jane. There was somebody who posted on Facebook saying that uh, that they liked Harriet. Yeah, yeah, that they liked Harriet. That they were with me on liking Harriet, and they did, they wanted us to talk about that. But David okay, well, us. if that makes you feel better about it, then <laughs> you need to you know, and you need to go looking outside of yourself for answers. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Well, let's, let's end on that. Um, Sarah Jane, thank you so much for joining the, the podcast for the last uh, few, for the last several weeks on this show. And then of course the place to thing. we are excited that you have, you know, you'll be back um, at least a couple times over the course of the next year. You are, um, your baby's due January 19th. January the 5th. Uh, oh, I went the wrong yeah. direction. My wife's birthday is the 12th. And I, I remember thinking it's seven days. Birthday. Seven yeah. days different than her birthday, but I went the wrong way. Mine's the nineteenth. Oh, My yours is the nineteenth. Oh, okay. And, and I, Sarah, I definitely remembered that. And Sarah and Jane promised that if the baby's two weeks late, she's going to name the baby after me. I, at least that's how I remember it. <laughs> have you? We had a we had a discussion about this. Yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Have, have you settled on a name? <laughs> no, I'm still thinking. You got time. I you got, got time. time. Yeah. Well. I've got um, ridiculous names, which will never be approved by my parents or my husband. <laughs> yeah, that's the way it goes. Mm. Well, I in, I think that means that the next time we um, we hear from you on the podcast, or at least the listeners hear from you, at least according to the current schedule, that means that you will have a baby, hopefully crying in the background. So, isn't that incredible? Yeah. That's... How do you feel, how do you feel about that? What I'm really hoping will happen is that I'll go into labor while your father's here visiting me. Because <laughs> <laughs> I just think his schedule isn't action-packed enough already. And yeah. Just a bit more stuff to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Huh. That would be an adventure for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> not that I'm, you know, I want to throw my, you know, I don't mean to be throwing my, my father under the bus as a you know, aid in caring for babies. He's been around quite a few of them over the last, well, I guess exactly. 33 years of his life, but seven grandchildren or more, hasn't he? <clears throat> yeah. 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 I think it's seven now. Yeah. So I don't know if there's any more coming. So presumably not at the moment, but, um, that's pretty exciting. We're excited for you. And, uh, we are excited, um, you know, to have you on the podcast and also, you know, hear how things are going with the baby. And that's, that's a, that's a grand adventure, I suppose. Uh, it's better than it's better than the adventure of being on podcast with us. Let's just put it that way. Um, so, I guess the next thing we we are doing here in the pod on close reads is um, we will be discussing a river runs through it. So we'll start that next week, and then after that, we're going to do a piece like a river, and then we'll get into the, the new books for the new year. So if you want to see that list or you haven't, you haven't heard what those are going to be. You can uh, sign up for the newsletter, check out all of our, uh, you know, announcements on, on social media. And then also we have the announcements for the plays, the thing, the, the, the four or five plays we're doing in the plays, the thing coming up as well. So be on the lookout for all that great stuff. In the meantime, uh, happy Thanksgiving to everyone who's listening. We are certainly thankful to everyone who supports the show through Patreon or by spreading the word or just by listening. Um, we are very grateful for this community and to be able to, have these lengthy conversations about books with you and uh, we would not be be able to do it of course without you so thank you and thanks to you Matt thanks to you Sarah Jane for joining the conversation for the Rector of Justin for Sarah Jane for Matt for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network I'm David Kern thanks for listening and happy reading Mm -hmm.